Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Martin Luther King believed there was a point where silence becomes betrayal. In the last year of his life, King delivered a powerful pro-peace, anti-war, anti-poverty message. We'll listen to an excerpt from King's speech where he explains his opposition to the war in Vietnam. Then I'll talk with writer Vijay Prashad about how the speech still applies today. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Fifty-one years ago today, April 4, 1967, precisely one year before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon at New York's Riverside Church. It was called Beyond Vietnam, and it set the tone for Reverend King's final year of life. In it, he refers to the evil triplets, racism, materialism, and militarism, and how they uphold one another. Several weeks after that first speech at Riverside, he delivered another address about why he opposed the war in Vietnam at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. This hour, we'll listen to extended excerpts from the speech and then have commentary on how it relates to the world today. Here's Martin Luther King Jr. at Ebenezer Baptist Church on April 30, 1967. I've chosen to preach about the war in Vietnam today because I agree with Dante that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in a period of moral crisis, maintain their neutrality. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. The truth of these words is beyond doubt. But the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty. Against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom, there has never been such a monumental dissent during a war by the American people. Polls reveal that almost 15 million Americans explicitly oppose the war in Vietnam Additional millions cannot bring themselves around to support it. This reveals that millions have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience 
and the reading of history. Now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking out today grows out of the fact that there are those who are seeking to equate dissent with disloyalty. It's a dark day in our nation when high-level authorities will seek to use every method to silence dissent. Something is happening and people are not going to be silent. The truth must be told. And I say that those who are seeking to make it appear that anyone who opposes the war in Vietnam is a fool or a traitor or an enemy of our soldiers is a person who has taken a stand against the best in our tradition. One of Martin Luther King Jr.'s biggest adversaries was FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover considered Reverend King a radical that needed to be watched. In 1963, Hoover placed King on the FBI's watch list. But despite constant scrutiny, Reverend King felt that he didn't need to justify his anti-war stances. Here's more of Martin Luther King Jr. at Ebenezer Baptist Church on April 30th, 1967. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for their children and ours, for black and white, for revolutionary and conservative? Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mayo as a faithful minister to Jesus Christ? Can I threaten them with death? Or must I not share with them my life? There will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know these people and hear their broken cries. And who are we supporting in Vietnam today? It's a man by the name of General Key who fought with the French against his own people and who said on one occasion that the greatest hero of his life is Hitler. This is who we are supporting in Vietnam today. Oh, our government and the press generally won't tell us these things, but God told me to tell you this morning. The truth must be told. And all the while the people read our leaflets and received regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. 
This is the road our nation has taken. For Reverend King, the war in Vietnam was also directly related to the black liberation struggle in America. Perhaps the more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and die in extraordinarily high proportion relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schoolroom. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago or Atlanta. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're listening to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking out against the Vietnam War at the Ebenezer Baptist Church on April 30th, 1967. It set the tone for the last year of his life, which ended in assassination 50 years ago today. For Reverend King, Vietnam was the clearest example of American moral hypocrisy. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. And it is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. And our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for all-embracing, unconditional love for all men. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of mankind. 
For Reverend King, the evil triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism could only be undone through revolution. In this speech at Ebenezer Baptist Church, he struck a tone that most today wouldn't associate with him, but was very much the basis for his last year of life. And don't let anybody make you think that God chose America as his divine messianic force to be a sort of policeman of the whole world. God has a way of standing before the nations with judgment, and it seems that I can hear God saying to America, you're too arrogant. Now, it isn't easy to stand up for truth and for justice. Sometimes it means being frustrated when you tell the truth and take a stand. Sometimes it means losing a job, it means being abused and scorned. It may mean having a seven, eight year old child asking your daddy, why do you have to go to jail so much? I've long since learned that be a follower of Jesus Christ means taking up the cross. And my Bible tells me that Good Friday comes before Easter. For the crown we wear there is the cross that we must bear. Let us bear it. Bear it for truth. Bear it for justice. And bear it for peace. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech against the Vietnam War, and we'll see how this fits in with our modern world with writer Vijay Prashad. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. For the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King, we're listening to Dr. King, and we're going to talk about what he was saying in the final months of his life with Vijay Prashad. He is the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Thanks a lot for joining us, Vijay Prashad. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. You know, I think when people think about the assassination of Martin Luther King and try to digest what he was saying in the last year or so of his life when he really ramped up his criticism of the Vietnam War and really began talking a peace game that went so far beyond civil rights. How do you take the last year of his life there? Well, you know, let's understand what Dr. King's ideas were. Uh, he was very much committed to the notion that people must be equal in a society. And therefore, he fought hard to basically dismantle the Jim Crow system in the United States, which meant to break the boundaries between, you know, whites and people of color in the United States. 
having established in 1965 and 66 the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, I mean, these were very important gains uh, for the civil rights movement, the ability now for people to, you know, have their, their vote protected uh, during elections and for people to have their dignity established uh, through the Civil Rights Act. Having these basically taken care of by 1966, I think King realized that there was a fundamental obstacle to equality in American society. And that obstacle was neither legislative entirely, nor was it juridical or legal. In other words, people having an equal status in the courts, in the voting booth, you know, and so on. What had divided American society, in, you know, largely on race lines, was the issue of economics, that there was immense poverty in the country, uh, not only in the black community, but in the white community as well and others, and that this poverty had to be tackled head on, which is why King moved from the civil rights movement to the poor people's movement. And I think he very quickly realized that you couldn't really tackle the question of poverty in America unless you tackle the question of the massive expense of scarce public resources on war and militarism, with Vietnam being really the central issue. So the journey for, for Dr. Martin Luther King from the civil rights movement to being an anti-war activist was entirely logical and governed by his demand uh, for full equality amongst people. In the speech that he gave at the Ebenezer Baptist Church on April 30th, 1967, he said, Our nation has taken the role of those who make peaceful revolutions impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that comes from the immense profits of overseas investment. I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. The giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our present policies. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West invest in huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands 
on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just this business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes and with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. Uh, that's a mouthful. Well, you know, it's a mouthful, Jerome, yes, but it's also a vision of the world that Dr. King shared with somebody he greatly admired, and that was Mahatma Gandhi. A hundred years ago, uh, Mr. Gandhi gave a speech in Pune at the Muir College. And in this speech in 1918, um, Mr. Gandhi uh, made a you know kind of moral standard, which I think bears reflection today by sensitive people. What Gandhi said was that the test of a civilization is not the number of millionaires it has, but the absence of starvation amongst its people. This equation between millionaires and hungry people is, I think, fundamental to the nonviolent view of the world, which Gandhi, of course, developed and which King, you know, shared fundamentally, that if you want to live in a nonviolent, peaceful world, you have to deal with the question of immense inequality. Uh, today, Three billion people around the planet go to sleep at night with hunger gnawing in their belly. This is a scandal. King was scandalized in 1967-68 by the immense inequality. Gandhi was scandalized by this in 1918. And in 2018, the situation seems even more bleak. So certainly, you're quite right. It's a mouthful. It's not the king that is generally portrayed in advertisements by the government and so on. But this is the real king. This is the Dr. Martin Luther King who was fundamentally committed to ending starvation among the masses, to use Gandhi's formula. And he understood that to do that, you had to really put your head in the lion's mouth and speak about those so-called giant triplets, the issue of capitalism, the issue of militarism, and the issue of racism. You know, these three isms for King were quite fundamental to his worldview, not just at the end of his life, but right through his life. They were merely highlighted at the end uh, when one of the issues, in other words, Jim Crow institutions, had been at least on the path to being dismantled. I'm talking with Vijay Prashad. He is the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. And we're talking about Martin Luther King on the 50th anniversary of his assassination. And we're discussing his peace message and anti-war message towards the last year of his life. I was struck that when he ticks off the kind of objections he has to the Vietnam War, he does go right with number one as it is the enemy of the poor. You may not know it, my friends, but it is estimated that we spend $500,000 to kill each enemy soldier, while we spend only $53 for each person classified as poor 
And much of that $53 goes for salaries to people who are not poor. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and attack it as such. This is a train that really just keeps running in the U.S. I mean, in the United States right now, we've got one and a half million households in extreme poverty, uh, twice as many as 20 years ago, and we're constantly increasing defense spending. I mean, this is obscene, you know, and I think King was right to mock the obscenity. In January of 1967, the United States military conducted an operation called Operation Cedar Falls, which was the largest ground operation in Vietnam. The bombing had begun of Hanoi. The United States had, of course, been bombing North Vietnam with all kinds of chemical weapons, including, of course, Agent Orange. This was all, you know, well known in the United States. Uh, It's not that this was somehow hidden. At the same time, in Algeria, the French were very ruthless, brutal, in fact, against the Algerians. You know, it, it might surprise people to know that on the very day in May, in 1945, on the 8th of May, when the Allies won or declared victory in Europe, on that very day, the French committed a grotesque massacre in the town of Satif in Algeria, where 15,000 people were massacred. The issue of Vietnam was one issue. That was, you know, directly an American issue. But there were so many colonial wars being prosecuted by the Europeans, by the Americans after World War II, whether it's Algeria, Malaya, in Kenya, in Vietnam, etc. And this was part of the world that King very well was very, very well aware of. I mean, he was not blind to the fact that this was the era on the one side of a reassertion of imperial wars and on the other side of a new kind of third world um, you know, uh, ethos coming from people that he greatly admired, including Kwame Nkrumah, first Prime Minister of Ghana. So yes, his context for considering militarism as a war against the poor was not something that he was alone with. This was the general attitude in the anti-imperialist movement around the planet. And again, you're quite correct. Since 1967-68, military spending has become even more obscene. The difference, uh, Jerome, from that period to now is that now within places like the United States and parts of the West, uh, there has been a kind of callousness towards military action overseas. In fact, there is a strange belief that has been created that military action is somehow beneficial. It's perhaps the liberal thing to do, to bomb Iraq, to bomb Libya, to bomb Syria, perhaps is a well-meaning thing to do. But this is extraordinary. This was not the view in 1967-68. So in many ways, you know, the era of king, the era of the third world resistance to these kind of wars has to some extent ended and we are in a much more difficult position with these kind of wars and this kind of military spending. It's interesting that at the time he was being criticized a lot from different angles. People would say they wanted to do something that wasn't just nonviolent and he speaks to that. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. 
But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. Right there, he is really laying it out. My own government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. That's um, something a lot of people still don't digest easily. I mean, this is, you know, one of the most uh, powerful statements from Dr. King toward the end of his life, this bitter honesty about the nature of uh, these American adventures, in not only in Vietnam, soon in Cambodia. I mean, after all, the bombing in Cambodia from 1970 was ruthless. And, uh, you know, only later did people understand what that meant, how that destroyed the society, pushed it into horrible genocide that was led by the Khmer Rouge. So, you know, uh, it's just to listen to that, to read that, to read King say that, I think is quite profound uh, for our times today, when the space for criticism is, you know, narrowed greatly. But but let's stop for a second and remember that King asks young people in the United States to be nonviolent, and they say, what about the government? You know, we have this epidemic of school shootings. We have this culture of guns, the immense uh, arms industry that not only sells guns domestically, but, but outside the country. And you wonder, where does this culture of, of guns come from? What's the gap between the massive arms sales that takes place that, in, in a sense, you know, is, gives buoyancy to the American economy and these so-called lone wolf shooters in schools? Well, let's, uh, you know, bear King's words in mind because King writes this letter to kids and says, you know, don't uh, follow the Molotov cocktail route. And they said, what about what our country does in Vietnam? In other words, there's a culture of war that has to be tackled. At football games, you have jets flying above during the halftime, troops in the middle out there being celebrated. When you board an aircraft, they say, well, if you're a military person, you get a priority. The culture of militarism has saturated the country, has made people feel, I think, that somehow it's much more noble to be a fighter, to carry a gun, than to be a teacher, to be a trade unionist, etc. This is a cultural issue. This is not the issue of one kid in Parkland, another kid in Columbine, somebody else in Sandy Hook, etc. The culture has been saturated with militarism. And I think when King says something like, we are the greatest purveyors of violence, it's not just that we're selling weapons uh, around the world, one of the largest exporters of weapons around the world. It's not just that the United States has the capacity to bomb a city to smithereens. The millions of tons of debris across the Middle East from American bombing runs, whether it's from Kabul out to the Sharath base near Damascus, I mean, millions of tons of debris. It's not just that. 
it's this attitude that is fostered by the culture that somehow militarism is a good thing i think this is what king is getting at and i think it speaks to the current march for our lives moment where people are saying we don't like this culture of militarism we don't want this culture of militarism there's a straight line between those young students from parkland and dr king's speech and i really hope that those young students have read this speech will read this speech and i'd like to hear them uh, reflect on some of these ideas i'm talking with vijay prashant he's director of tricontinental the institute for social research and we're talking about martin luther king's last year of life and his peace message and anti-war message during that time and we'll be back with more after the break i'm jerome mcdonald and you're listening to worldview on wbez This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking today with Vijay Prashad. He's director of Tricontinental, the Institute for Social Research. And we're talking about Martin Luther King on the 50th anniversary of his assassination. I wanted to move next to another section of the, the speech there at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in 1967. And he says something about nonviolence and how people sometimes um, like nonviolence and sometimes they don't. America and most of its newspapers applauded me in Montgomery and I stood before thousands of Negroes getting ready to riot when my home was bombed and said we can't do it this way. They applauded us in the sit-in movement we nonviolently decided to sit in at lunch counters. They applauded us on the freedom rides when we accepted blows without retaliation. Oh, the press was so noble in its applause and so noble in its praise when I was saying, be nonviolent toward Bull Connor. There's something strangely inconsistent about a nation and a press. That will praise you when you say be nonviolent toward Jim Clark, but will curse and damn you when you say be nonviolent toward little brown Vietnamese children. There's something wrong with that press. He's noting the, the racism out there and factoring the racism in. Our media is so decidedly parochial in its understanding of world affairs, and not only parochial, but I think racist as well. I mean, deeply racist. There's an understanding that when American planes bomb Raqqa and hit civilians, those civilians were killed by accident. If a Syrian army plane bombs in, say, Deir Azur and kills civilians, they've done it deliberately. Now, I'm not saying that uh, we should defend the Syrian Air Force or attack the American Air Force, but at least let's understand that aerial bombardment kills civilians. It's not that one of them has done it accidentally and the other has done it deliberately. There's this general sense that when American power is used abroad, that power is used homeopathically. 
It's used in small doses. It's used with precision. It's used properly. It's used in a human rights way. You know, that's a general racist understanding of the use of American power overseas. And I think, you know, King is basically foreshadowing the dissent of the American media and the way that it covers war. He's saying that if I say, let's behave with so-called tolerance or nonviolence toward these little brown children in Vietnam, what he's saying is, well, you know, we don't. I mean, we're behaving towards them monstrously. And he's going to get attacked for that because the general consensus is that when American planes bomb in Vietnam, they're trying to prevent uh, loss of life. They are not actually trying to kill people. And if they kill people, well, we're sorry we killed you, but we're only using bombs to prevent more death. And I think that's a very disturbing way in which we've come to immunize ourselves to the brutality of war, to make our conscience somehow slightly dulled to the fact that the use of chemical weapons, whether it's Agent Orange in Vietnam or depleted uranium in Iraq, for a noble use. We are noble in our use of violence. And King says, I don't think so. I mean, I think this is a pretty brutal thing. And I'm going to say that just as I said we should be nonviolent in our actions in Birmingham, we should be nonviolent in Vietnam. And certainly he was going to get attacked for that because he was going against this fundamental consensus about American goodness abroad. And he, t he tries in the speech to get in the head of the people that are getting bombed. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically as we herd them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs are rarely met. They know they must move on or be destroyed by our bombs. So they go, primarily women and children and the aged. They watch as we poison their water, as we kill a million acres of their crops. They must weep as the bulldozers roll through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wandered into the hospitals, with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted injury. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we allow ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? What do they think as we test out our latest weapons on them? just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe, where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? He understands. This is a man of great compassion and also learning. It's not a question merely of morals or perspective, 
But King read a great deal and tried to understand what was happening in Vietnam. He was very well advised by, you know, pan-Africanist intellectuals like Vincent Harding, uh, who helped him write many of these speeches. Um, these people, these pan-Africanists uh, within the King orbit, uh, had a sensibility of anti-colonialism. They knew what was happening on the other side. They tried their best to understand how the other side thinks. If you pay attention to the fact that right now the United States has been in a very long engagement in Afghanistan, uh, if we pay attention to the fact that uh, very rarely uh, do public officials in the United States try to understand how the Afghans feel about this war, I mean, what it must mean for a taxi driver to be taken to the American base at Bagram and be disappeared. Uh, how does his family feel? What does it mean when you drop the mother of all bombs near the Pakistani border and not allow journalists to come in to talk to people or understand what did that bomb mean to the civilians who lived there? Surely the mother of all bombs is not discriminatory. This level of uh, compassion, let us say, uh, for the victims of this kind of bombardment, uh, I think uh, really su suggests that King was a, an, a remarkable person, but also that he was well educated and schooled by the Pan-African intellectuals around him. And I have to say, Jerome, that there has been a decline in American thinking in terms of this residue of anti-colonial thought that used to play a role in American letters. It played quite a fundamental role at a certain time, and, and this is disappearing. And you can hear very clearly in the uh, clip that we played, he talks about Vietnam as something that um, you know wanted its independence after World War II, talked about the Declaration of Independence in its declaration. Then we worked against it with the French. We, you know, this was a nationalist war, and he diagnoses it correctly. Well, you know, in some senses, Jerome, I think it's not believable when somebody says years later, well, we got it wrong. Because, you know, the American government knew this. They knew this in 1945 when Ho Chi Minh, uh, you know, came in and said, you know, we are basically Jeffersonians. And, you know, yes, I'm a communist, but I'm also a nationalist. And I very much believe in building a society, uh, you know, of, of all Vietnamese people. You know, it, it I think it bears remembering that at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954, when the Vietnamese partisans, let's call them partisans, uh, surrounded the French base in Dien Bien Phu, one of the most interesting features of that was that they used very large loudspeakers and played a particular song uh, to the French. And the song they played was the old anti-Nazi resistance anthem, the Song of the Partisans. And they blasted this song for the French. And in a sense, what the Vietnamese fighters were saying to the French was, listen, right now, we are the partisans and you are the Nazis. And you have to digest this. This is nine years after World War II. And you still want to throw us, you know, in concentration camps. You still want to occupy our lands. You need to understand you're on the wrong side of history. And it was the defeat of the French in Dien Bien Phu in 1954 that drove in, brought in the Americans into that war. King understood this. And the reason King understood it, and I want to repeat this, is because King was able to see the world uh, through an anti-colonial perspective. And I'm afraid however much you know, liberals in America want to lionize, let's say, John F. Kennedy or LBJ, 
none of these people and very very few people in their administrations were able to understand the anti-colonial perspective. They had entirely, uh, you know, I'm going to use a hard word now, but they'd been entirely brainwashed by the kind of understanding put forward by the Dulles brothers, especially John Foster Dulles, who basically considered the anti-colonial movement to be an open door to communism. I think that was a very narrow-minded perspective, and it, uh, it drew the Americans into Vietnam uh, for a war which, you know, they would end up losing in 1975. I'm talking with Vijay Prashad, and he's director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. We're talking about Martin Luther King and the thoughts that he was having in the last year of his life as he upped the anti-war rhetoric. What price do you think Martin Luther King paid for this position? A lot of people talk about his assassination as happening because he really took this position and it enraged people. Yes. On April 4th, 1967, he gives a speech at Riverside Church, my favorite speech, a very powerful speech, where he really gets in under the skin of militarism and in particular the Vietnam War. That was on April 4th, 1967. He's assassinated a year later. Uh, Was this assassination related to his radicalization? Perhaps. It could very well also be that his assassination was by somebody who hated the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and assassinated him for that. King opened the door from 1967 into 1968 to a new kind of possible politics in the United States, a new kind of politics with a much more socialistic agenda. And if King had survived that assassination, you know, uh, the role of a leader is quite fundamental. It's likely that that politics might have deepened. It might have taken hold uh, in sections of either the Democratic Party or a different party. King might have been able to open this much more left terrain, a much more populist terrain, a terrain that took seriously the suffering of the people in the country and their hopes and aspirations. And so, you know, uh, he may have been killed for any number of reasons, but his death meant the closure of what might have been, I think, a very important direction, the oxygenation of humanity inside American politics. You're optimistic about the United States changing, being forced to change in part by politics in a multipolar world, but are are there people who speak with this kind of clarity now that you think about it? It seems like the, the space for that is, I don't know, not great. It's not great, that's true. In a sense, Jerome, the issue of the what we call the battle of ideas, I think, is fundamental here, which is to say that this has a lot to do with what people talk about in terms of, let's say, corporate monopolies controlling the media, the narratives of world affairs being put forward in a very, very narrow, narrow way. I mean, the, the extraordinary narrow way in which people are forced to discuss the question of Syria, for example, where the framework is, are you for Assad or against Assad? In other words, the complexities of Syrian history are off the table. The issue of regional competition is off the table. Everything is about, are you for or against? This narrowing of discussion, uh, this ahistoricity, you know, where context is not seen as important, all of this has made conversation difficult 
and has made therefore visionary leadership difficult because when visionary leaders appear they have to talk expansively about the context in which we live in about the possibilities that are inherent today i mean one of king's lines is that it's not that we are waiting for tomorrow he says the fact is that tomorrow is today in other words the possibilities for uh, the future exist now you know you you need the space to articulate these dreams to articulate hope and i think the corporate monopoly media has done a very you know effective job of suffocating conversation and discussion you know you try to go on to a mainstream show and start talking about something and you get interrupted and say so tell me are you for us or against us no you haven't answered the question i mean listen friend these big questions are not to be reduced to the soundbite that you're going to use to advertise your program you know the big questions require thought thought requires time time requires compassion this is the kind of chain which we're losing to the corporate monopoly media that is why the battle of ideas today is so fundamental if people in the united states are going to truly understand what this new multipolar era means and the role of american nationals in this new world Vijay Prashad, uh, thanks a lot for joining us here on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King and reminding us of some important things. Vijay Prashad is the director of Tricontinental, the Institute for Social Research. Good talking with you. Thanks a lot, Jerome. Here's more of Martin Luther King Jr. at Ebenezer Baptist Church on April 30th, 1967. We'll sing it as we are getting ready to sing it now. Men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations will not rise up against nations, neither shall they study war anymore. And I don't know about you, I ain't going to study war no more. Study war no more. Study war no more. Study. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about international travelers that live in a borderless world where they travel freely from hemisphere to hemisphere. And I'm talking, of course, about birds. It's going to be a lot of fun. I hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Anna Waters and Galilee Abdullah for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.